Everybody, welcome again to the uh, Snap No Tap podcast. How's everybody doing? How you doing, Joe? We have a special guest today. I'll let Joe do all the honors of the introductions. And uh... hey, Tony. Yeah, I'm actually. I, I've been under the weather for like uh, most of the week. I'd say since midweek. I, I thought I, I actually thought I might finally have COVID, uh, but I got a couple tests. It's just been mild cold symptoms, but. It's like one of those things back in the old times, you would just shake off and kind of go to work or whatever. But now it's, I have to be extra careful. I, I couldn't go to school, you know, didn't go to work. We haven't been to the gym. So it's kind of like, although I've tested negative, so I've had a couple tests, but initially like it takes them 48 hours, I guess, before they really consider the test valid. So you have to have symptoms for a little while. So all that time, you know, I've got everybody you know, around the family kind of on pins and needles because they don't want to be near me because I have the plague now, you know, even more, even more so than normally they want to be away from me, I guess. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I feel fine though otherwise, but uh, yeah, excited to have Justin here. We just met prior to the podcast. Um, Justin, welcome to the show. Justin Brown. Well, I've known Justin. I've trained J- Justin. He's a part of the Tri-C program. He's been to my house. So I actually know the man, you know, so uh, he's uh really a cool dude very interesting background not just in martial arts but in his life in general and i hope he decides to share some of that with us but you know officially he is a uh as far as work he's a firefighter and emt from the great state of indiana and welcome justin brown thank you guys um super excited and honored to be here um, been looking forward to it. We're honored to have you. Thank you for, for saying yes. <laughs> no problem. Today, today is actually my uh, 23rd wedding anniversary, and I'm home alone because the entire family is off on spring break. So <laughs> I'm, I, I'm spending my anniversary with you guys. <laughs> everybody should spend their anniversary with us. You know, it makes for better marriages, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh yeah, I'm, I'm excited. My Boilermakers are playing tonight against uh, Texas, so hopefully we'll get out of the second round of the big dance and uh, do some damage. Yeah, I've uh, I've been loosely following following it because, as you guys, this has been a chaotic for me last three days, so I really haven't had much time to watch the games, so I can just see it for moments at a time, but... Um, you know, yeah, let's let's see how uh, let's just see how it plays out. I'm excited right, right. to see it. So uh, what what would you guys like to know? Well, let's tell us your story. Start from the beginning. Well, let's I start mean, with the theory of relativity. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I think it's a good theory. I, right. I, I think it's you pretty support sound. it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Relatively um, speaking. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm I'm originally from Muncie, Indiana. Uh, grew up in Indiana. Uh, my I went to a very small school. My mom was an English teacher. I graduated with 15 people in my graduating class. Wow. Um, so it, it was a, it's a small private school. My mom still teaches there. Um, so a lot of us went all the way through like kindergarten, all the way through senior year together. So uh, that was it was unique and uh, a, a pretty good time. Uh, I played sports. I played soccer and basketball in high school. Uh, went to Purdue, uh, spent a couple years in the mechanical engineering program at Purdue and realized I really didn't want to be an engineer. So with the help of a good friend and mentor of mine, I switched my major to history. I joined the Army ROTC program and turned my parents' hair white <laughs> uh, after about two and a half years. Um, so I, I gave my, I, I tell people I had such a great junior year in college, I decided to have another one. And, uh, <laughs> After that, uh, along the way, I met my wife. Uh, we got married uh, the year after I left Purdue when I was down at Fort Knox. I spent four years on active duty in the United States Army. Uh, I was down uh, most of the time at Fort Hood, Texas in the 1st Cavalry Division. I was trained as an armor officer, and the Army at the time had reinstituted a program called the Branch Detail Program. So... As a brand new lieutenant, I was trained as an armor officer. And after two years, I switched over to the quartermaster branch and was doing all kinds of logistics. Uh, my last job, I was the brigade staff logistics officer for what was then called the DISCOM for 1st Cavalry Division, the Division Support Command. So it was all three forward support battalions, the main support battalion, the aviation support battalion, um, and all that coordination and that good stuff. Uh, once my term on time on active duty was done, uh, I got out. I, I kicked around a little bit uh, doing sales, did some financial services, and I found the fire service. Um, started off on the Muncie Fire Department, and after a couple of years, switched over to the Lafayette, Indiana Fire Department, which is where I'm, I am now. I'm a sergeant. Uh, and that that's kind of kind of my story. I, I I've done a lot of different things to pull me. My my interests pull me in several different directions. So I, I've gotten a chance to do a lot of different things. But uh, you know, uh, and that's that's kind of where I am today. I, I we live outside of West Lafayette. My wife and I have four boys, ages fifteen up to twenty. And so uh, this is actually one of the few times of the year that it's quiet at my house. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how I got here. Well, what about your martial arts background? That's very interesting. And you reached out because we had a friend of Joe's on here previously, and he did the same martial arts style that you started yes. in. So I study an art called Bujinkan Budo Taijutsu. Um, which is a mouthful. Most people have never heard of it. It's uh, the grandmaster of Soke is Dr. Masaki Hatsumi in, uh, over in Japan. And I started in the martial arts at Purdue. Um, my sophomore year, me and a couple buddies in the dorm, we decided uh, we wanted to do something that we'd always wanted to do, but had nothing to do with our major and wasn't something that we had done in high school. And all three of us wanted to do martial arts. So at that time, uh, at the beginning of the fall semester, the student organizations on the university would do call-outs where you'd go and talk to people and find out what they do. So 
we decided we'd go to a couple of these call-outs. And the first one we went to at the time was called the Purdue Nimpo Club. And Nympho? Nimpo. <laughs> N-I-N-P-O. Yeah, because sign uh, me up for the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not that club. That was a different group. Um, and we went to that call-out, and we did a training session that night. And I said, I don't need to go any others. This is where I want to be. And so – I was in that group for the remaining four years that I was at Purdue, and I just kept going. I, I became the instructor. I was president of it. Uh, some of my best friends on the planet um, came from that group. Um, we would just get together three times a week for about two and a half hours, and we were young and stupid, didn't know what we were doing, and we just beat each other up, basically. <laughs> um, but I, I fell in love with it, and I've been doing it ever since, so... I started my training in 1994, uh, and it, it, it's been great. Uh, I've been to Japan enough. I've been to Japan several times at this point. I've got to meet people from all over the world, um, train with them, become friends with them. It, it's really been a good experience. Well, let's say, uh, so I got a few years on you, and then I, so when I was young, um, let's say high school, the ninja craze was upon us. Okay. Oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of magazines, a lot of movies, uh, um, enter the, dr- uh, not enter the dragon, but enter the ninja. Oh, I love that. Yeah. We all saw those movies. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So how would you compare your training to those movie ninja things? Oh, it's, it's about, it's about as similar as the firefighting TV shows are to actual firefighting, which yep. means hardly at all. <laughs> gotcha. Um, no, the, uh, so I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about the Bujinkan because that's, that's what I've done. Um, the Bujinkan is the organization that, that Hatsumi Sensei set up. It, it's actually nine different martial arts, Japanese arts that we study. Three of them or three of them are actual ninjutsu arts and the other six are more, they would be much more traditional samurai style arts. Um, that, uh, the, the term would be, uh, I believe Kyoru arts, that type of training, um, meant battlefield weapons, armor, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, not, not a lot of running around. I mean, we've done that like, going out in the woods and practice stealth techniques and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, not, not running around throwing, throwing shuriken at each other, sneaking up on people and stuff like that. Um, none, none of that. It, it was, it would, it's, it's much more of a battlefield martial arts style um, is, is really what most of the training is about. Lots of weapon work. Um, yeah. Lots of weapon work that, that would probably set it apart from a lot of stuff. One thing I've learned from doing these podcasts because of the guests, some of the guests that J- that Joe has had on their, uh, you know, out- outdoor, I don't want to call them survivalists, but they're in that realm of uh, tracking and, and living off the land and all of that building fires. And we've covered all of that. And uh, one thing I've learned by w- listening to, to these fine people that we're on is that's a full-time education right there. I mean, to just study how to survive, let alone adding it in, you know, martial techniques and all of that. So, um, yeah, it would be daunting to 
to really be able to cover all of that amount of knowledge, you know, in it is, one person. Um, the, our previous grandmaster, Takamatsu Sensei, said that, that the art of the ninja is the art of survival. So I, I was super excited. Uh, I believe it was last week's podcast with the, the gentleman that had taught at Tom Brown's tracker school. Yeah. All of that. So all of that ties in. All of those skills tie in. So um, we, I joke with people in my group that when you start off in the Bujinkan, you've unwittingly enrolled yourself into a martial arts PhD program. The problem is you've skipped elementary and high school and college and gone <laughs> right to the PhD because there is so much stuff to learn and it it's one of the things that's that's kept me going. There's always something new to learn. There's always something um, different, a different perspective. Even if you've done the technique, a particular technique a thousand times, there's still something there that you can learn from. So, you know, that's, and, and we've, uh, my group, we've trained outside. I've had my guys out in the snow in February in Indiana when it's uh, 16 degrees out and, you know, a foot of, foot of snow on the ground. Uh, that was one of the ways that uh, I would weed people out, you know, uh, people that would be maybe less desirable. Uh, we used to train uh, where I lived before we trained in an old church, empty lot. And people would always come up and they'd say, I want to learn martial arts. Tell me about your art. And we'd talk about it. They're like, well, that sounds really neat. Where do you guys train? And I'd tell them. And inevitably they'd ask, well, what do you guys do when it rains? And the answer was always, well, we get wet. And that usually right there, that got rid of 90% of the people because <laughs> they, they, well, I, I want to learn something, but I don't, I don't want to be outside. And I don't want to get dirty. Right. Sure. Uh, so that, that was just something I developed. Um, Cause you know, you, you, people expect you to have a place to train or a, a shop or a storefront. And, and those are rather expensive right? Rent is costly. So that's what we do right now. Uh, that group over in Muncie is still going strong with, uh, four or five guys and, and they train in my friend's garage. Um, so I go over there about once a month and train with those guys. I've got another, uh, young lady who allows me to claim her as a student, though she doesn't really need me anymore down in Austin, Texas. And, you know, just building that network of, of people that, that like to train and like to study. Yeah, it's stereotypes, you know, like boxing. It was the seedy boxing gyms, you know, growing up as a kid, you'd watch older movies or television shows. And it was always like this seedy, grubby, you know, boxing gym. Um, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, many times that's kind of how it was. But uh, yeah, it's just people. Yeah, people have these pre preconceived ideas. And, and you're right, the rents, especially in certain areas uh i know that the rents are skyrocketing now but even before then the rents were difficult so uh to make you know uh to to come up with for people so they they focused a lot on the children's programs and you know the adults kind of suffered because now you have a limited amount of time to really teach the meat and potatoes to the adults uh but yeah you gotta you gotta pay the rent and uh I, I don't train kids and except for mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause what, what we do, and, and I want to talk about the booty kind of a little bit and just how sure. it's set up because 
one of the things I tell prospective students of mine is stay off the internet. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of good. There's a lot of really bad stuff on the internet. There, There are plenty of golden nuggets, but just like real golden nuggets, what you've got to get through to find one can be rather daunting. Um, but yeah, we, we generally don't train kids. The, the Bujinkan is set up. There are 15 ranks of black belt in the Bujinkan, which makes it a little bit unique among especially Japanese style martial arts. Um, been that way since the jump. And uh, what we study is the actual, uh, the Japanese term for it would be Budo, where it is not a sport oriented art is an art oriented towards real combat techniques. So uh, in my group, we don't do, you, you wouldn't, it, it, some groups do, it kind of depends on the instructor. You won't see a lot of like sparring like you'd see in a boxing gym. Now we do some of that after a while, um, but at first it's, things are very slow because people have to, First off, they've got to learn how to fall, right? People come and they're like, well, we want to learn how how to, you know, I want you to teach me how to throw people. Well, I got to know that you can hit the ground without breaking a collarbone before I can start throwing you. Um, So we do a lot of groundwork as far as falling, learning how to, you know, not hurt the person. Um, And and Tony, I know you have a a music background and I I tell people it's kind of like playing a musical instrument. You, you start off with those scales and arpeggios and you start off slowly and the speed will develop over time um, as a way to kind of help the person build up their body because you can't just throw somebody in right away. And, you know, the first day of class, one of my very first classes, we start, if we're doing three foot staff that day and that's the first night that you show up, we're putting a three foot stick in your hand, you know, and, and that's, that's also a little different. Usually in a lot of traditional style martial arts, you don't get to see any weapons until later. And we, we do that pretty much from the jump. Um, so that's, that's a couple of things that make it unique. Boxing, at least in my, as a kid, the gyms were more, there were classes. Okay. You just went in, you paid the gym fee and you worked out on your own. And once in a blue moon, a coach would come by and say, Hey, you know, snap into it. I mean, if you wanted to get good, you know, or compete or something, that's a little different. And there were, there would be guys around the gym, but you know, that would show you things. But I would say that boxing, at least again, this is when I was young and from the old timers that I talked to boxing was a lot like pool where, you know, um, pool players won't share or they used to not share information. Okay. You wanted to learn, you had to play them for money and get your ass whooped and then pick up the details kind of like on your own. And that's how a lot of the boxing was, unless you actually wanted to pay, you know, for like private lessons, you know. Um, so I uh, I found that kind of unique, you know, that when I finally started learning how to do catch wrestling, I was actually getting like really good private lessons. I mean, I had lessons with my boxing coaches too, don't get me wrong, but as I said, it, when we would go to the gyms, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the, it, it wasn't like a martial arts school. So your right. place sounds more like what I would probably be used to because, yeah, I can't um, 
relate to like the martial art school thing. I, Cause I just, you know, I just was never a part of that. Right. And it, it's a, a lot of times. So in, in my experience, people that are, you know, interested in the Bujinkan, we, we've got a whole, like, like a lot of arts, we've got PhDs, architects, doctors, lawyers, a lot of very smart people that, that they're, they're drawn to it. And a lot of times, you know, and you guys have talked about this in a few other episodes, people aren't used to someone throwing a punch at them. And they're really not used to throwing a punch at someone else, you know, because most people are told since we were little kids, share your toys and play nice with the other kids. (laughs) And then you come to a martial arts class or a boxing class or, or, or whatever. And it's, Hey, we, we, you got to throw a punch, right? And you've got to get used to throwing that punch, get good at it, get used to having punches thrown at you, and then start developing the skill set. Yeah, a lot of rep- endless repetition over and over. A lot of repetition. So, you know, I always tell people, people have come to me, I want to learn a martial art. And I really have three rules for, for folks that want to learn martial arts. One is pick an art that you're going to like because after about the first three months when the newness wears off, it's a lot of work, right? And in the Bujinkan, we don't, we don't have tournaments. We don't have sporting venues. So if someone's like, well, I, 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 I want to, I want to earn a trophy. This, this is not the art for you, right? Cause you're just going to get beat up a lot, you know, Carefully, not. I don't want to make it sound like we're just taking people out back, and you know what I mean. But yeah. you know, you're you're going to get hit, so it's going to be a lot of work. The second rule is find an actual qualified instructor, not somebody who's on the internet who's who's made up an art that nobody's ever heard of, or you can't find their teacher or track anything down from their history. Right, a, a qualified instructor that that knows what they're doing, that's not going to get you hurt. Right. I mean, accidents happen. Sure. Especially when you start adding speed, but at the beginning, especially. And then the third rule is not all instructors are created equal. Right. Some guys are some guys are better at teaching than other guys. Some guys are better at performing than other guys. But you can always learn from who's ever teaching. Right. There's always something that you can pull away from something that you can get. Um, And and then just go have fun with it. Go enjoy it and sink your teeth into it and, and go take it as far as, as you can um, if you want to keep going with it. What do you have well, to say, Joe? Well, I have a lot of questions. So uh, I'll just kind of randomly. So I think the first one, uh, you know, you have, you have this kind of full spectrum martial art at your disposal. What attracted you to catch? So this is really interesting. So, my, my third son decided in seventh grade he was going to try out for the junior high wrestling team. It was more of a wrestling club. And one of my younger cousins had, had gone on to do uh, state, you know, got to the state level in high school wrestling. So I, I told my son, hey, great. If, if that's what you want to do, go for it. Try it out. He, all, he had a lot of friends in school that was like, come on, come on, come on. So, you know, being a dad, you want to help your kid do well. So I, I broke my rule. I got on the internet because I had never done wrestling. 
right? I, I had tried to watch it a couple times, but I didn't understand, especially with amateur wrestling. I had no idea how the scoring system worked, right? And coming from my background, I'm like, well, why aren't they doing this? Why don't, why doesn't he do this? What, you know, a lot of the more dangerous stuff had take, been taken out of it because it is a sport. Well, as I got on the internet, I'm looking, 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 and I keep seeing this thing called catch wrestling come up. And I saw a clip of the late Billy Robinson. And he was obviously in his eighties during the clip and he was showing someone how to do a, I don't know if it was a front face lock or whatever, but what, what struck me about it was how he moved, how he, he was very efficient. There wasn't any, a lot of wasted effort, but it, after the years of studying and, and, and going to Japan, he moved very similarly to some of the older Japanese, what we call Shihan. And when I saw what he was doing, I said, oh, that's Takagi Oshinru. So one of the schools that, that are in the Bujinkan is Takagi Oshinru Jutaijutsu, right? It's, it's a jujitsu style school. And I was like, oh, well, that's neat. That's interesting. So I, I kept digging on the internet and I came across Tony's channel. And some of the clips that he has on there from the lost art of hooking and the snap, no tap. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is really neat stuff. He, this, this, this is what we do. So uh, I was helping my son with it and he came home from practice one day and he said, dad, the coach said the stuff that you were showing me is really good. And every bit of it's going to get me disqualified. <laughs> yeah. You don't want him doing that stuff. <laughs> I, said, I said, okay. I said, go, don't get disqualified. We'll, we'll cover it, you know, at a later time, you know, go have fun, go learn. Cause there's that competition for, for a young person of, of get in there and, and, you know, test yourself. Right. So I'll leave you be, go, go do the wrestling and, but I'm going to keep doing this. And that was, you know, my, that particular son is 16 now. So I, I was researching uh, Tony's, website i was looking at it i see that he's out he's in chicago and i'm like man that's that's really close and it it got to the point last fall where he said i'm i'm going to close the tri c program and so i i talked to my wife and i said i need to go i need to go meet this guy okay. I, I need to go meet him and she goes this guy you're going to drive up to chicago you know, with all the stuff that's going on in Chicago, you know, in the last couple of years, you're going to drive up to Chicago and talk to this guy you've never met. And I said, yeah, I need to talk to him because he's, he's close. And the clips that I've seen, he's, he's showing real stuff. There, there's value here. Um, because I always like, you know, one of the things I encourage people with martial arts, I, I like the authentic martial arts, the, you know, because it, of the context and the cultures they come from. But when you find somebody who knows the real deal of whatever it is, I want to talk to that person, right? Um, just compare notes and, and learn from them. Cause you know, there, there's not that many of those guys floating around out there. And that's kind of what drew me to catch. It was because my, my son started doing junior high wrestling and I, I discovered something and I recognized a lot of similarity to what, I've experienced in the Bujinkan. 
I'll make a comment and it's kind of a question or hopefully it'll spur more conversation. But so I'm familiar with some of the books from the eighties, like Stephen Hayes wrote some books and uh-huh. I, I used to look through them. And one of the things kind of flipping back through them that I was kind of surprised that at, at the time I didn't pick off, but there's some stuff that they do that uh, we would categorize as ripping. And I was really kind of impressed that I was in there. I saw some pictures of them fish hooking and other things oh, yes. like that, that were, I was like, Oh, wow, this is, so I can kind of see, you know, that people who are exposed to that would would want to learn more about that or like it's interesting that that overlap there that that is kind of uh and in a lot of that you don't find in other combat arts it's kind of uh it's it's the the real dirty fighting so a lot of them may have certain things like oh kicking the legs or groin but when you get really gritty and i was impressed to see that that was in some of those techniques that they had um so i'll tell you a great story i was in japan and hatsumi sensei's teaching and he is He's 89, I think 90. He's 90 now, I think. Um, so he's in his late 80s. And I watched him in Japan with Uke, who's the demonstratee, right? That, that's who's being demonstrated on. And at one point, I'm going to take off my glasses. He, he took his middle finger and his thumb, and he grabbed the gentleman around his nose, but in his eyes and took him to the ground after making him like leap over his locked out arm and all this other stuff. And all of us watched him receive that technique and just went, Ooh, that, that was nasty. And uh, Hatsumi Soke turned and he talked to people about what he was doing. And he gave the gentleman just enough time to kind of get himself right and, and get the, get the tears out of his eyes and said, okay, and he says, okay. He goes, okay, once again. And then he did it to him again. And like picked him up, started to pick him up off the floor by the inside around his nose, but through the eyeballs. <laughs> so yeah, there was, there's a lot of that, a lot of, uh, you know, groin strikes, right? Like we do groin strikes, right? If it's there and it's available, you strike him in the groin. There's a lot of, uh, a study of Kyusho points in the face that um, Tony talks about in, in some of his videos and, and, and how to rip and, and, and pressure points that, that cause severe amounts of pain um, to people, that, that that's in there. Um, one of the things that, as far as you talk about meshing, Joe, Tony says, well, the maximum of catch wrestling, my whole body as a weapon, your whole body as a target, Right. If I, if I can't get the arm, I'll get the hand. If I can't get the hand, I'll get the thumb, right? I'll, um, I'll do that. One, one of the things in the Bujan Khan that, that's unique, and I'll talk a little bit about like the Budo code, we always assume, at least my group, my teachers always told us, we always assume that the other person is going to be bigger, stronger, and faster than us. <coughs> So if, if, your opponent, if your opponent is bigger and stronger and faster, how do you survive that fight? Right? I mean, that, that's a huge question. Um, and so that's really what we study and what we try, to, uh, we try to work on, developing the skills that will allow for that. And it, it's, it's tough. It's a lot of fun, but it's, it's very difficult um, to get that because, you know, 
especially I found with, with younger men, you know, sports world, use muscle, go, go, go. And then you got to tell them, no, don't use muscle. You know, don't use muscle right now because what you're doing won't work if the person is stronger than you. you you've got to go about that a different way. Yeah, absolutely. If you rely on your attributes, uh, someone's going to have better attributes than you. And, you know, or, or your attributes will eventually will fade with age, as I'm learning. <laughs> Not that I right. have great attributes to begin with, but um, it's kind of one of those uh, two things can be true at once. You know, like, yeah, you should work on your physical attributes. You should try and be as strong and as fit and as agile as possible. But also uh, your technique cannot be dependent on that, you know, uh, because, again, you're going to run into those bigger people. And that should there just should be an underlying principle in all martial arts that, you know, you've got to. Uh, you know, uh, optimize for things like leverage and, and technique and things that will, you know, not fade with age. Right. And, you know, and what if, what if there's more than one guy, right? Or, or you're sick that day. You know, or you got you're sick flu. that day. Or, you know, one of the things I would, I would do is a, a good friend of mine. She's uh, went to school with her in college. We trained together. She's about five, and weighs about 115 pounds and I'll take a, a big guy that and, and pull the two of them out and I've done this before and put a knife in her hand and say now who's stronger right because you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna muscle your way through that live blade right so well you can but it's not gonna go well for you right um, but yeah there, there's a lot of crossover and I, I think that's just part of that's part of budo right those rips um, and, and they're, they're nasty and devastating and, and people don't really understand it because very few people have, have seen it. And, uh, I find if you do it to someone a little too early in their training, um, they quit because they, they just can't handle it, you know? Um, uh, let me uh, interject quickly here. Uh, just a little little update because I, I I believe I'll be able to probably stay on the uh, the podcast for a, a while here. Um, the hospital just called uh, regarding my mother, and there's been a significant update, uh, life changing update. So, oh no, she well her kidneys are back to functioning. She was dehydrated and uh, obviously they're going to keep her again tonight. But uh, the doctor, you know, basically asked me, what do you want to do? <clears throat> so <clears throat> I'm going to be getting a phone call from the social worker to set up, to try to get her at least into some short-term care facility. Um, uh, so I'll be waiting on, on that. So uh, that that's, Life altering for her and for myself because, you know, things will be changing quickly, all of a sudden out of the blue. So I will keep everybody abreast of that. Uh, um, so this week will be a very chaotic week for me, probably. I'll be, uh, I don't know what I'll be. <laughs> I got I to gotta see what's up. Well, I know everybody who's listening and, and us are going to be praying for you and your mom. Well, what if people don't, they don't know the backstory. She collapsed here Friday. Uh, found her on the kitchen floor. I was in the other room. The care caretaker was with her, and we had to call nine one one. And she she's been in a hospital since Friday. Uh, but yeah, uh, one of the social workers called me Friday late after I got back from the hospital, uh, talking about short term, long term care, and gave me a list of 
you know, facilities that I have to look at. Unfortunately, and I want to explain this to people since I won't be having a caretaker now, uh, they would like me to go to these facilities and check them out in person. Well, I can't if there's nobody to watch my mother. So if I can just get her into a short-term facility, which I'm sure will be okay, and that'll free up my time to go to these other facilities and see. But now, again, there may be a waiting list. There's normally a waiting list for these long-term care facilities. So, um, yeah, but that's that's where it's at right now. Uh, as I said, I, I I just got the phone. I just got the phone call. Um, okay, so we got that clear. I'll keep everybody updated. Getting back to our special guest. And hello, Nico. I haven't seen you in a while. Hey, Tony. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, so uh, let me interject with the uh, – because you guys are talking about the ripping. And so kind of like with the boxing uh, or even wrestling, you know, straight wrestling um, – I was always taught what my coaches always were like, don't depend on one technique. So for example, let's say you just throw a jab. Don't expect that jab to knock the guy out. You got it's a setup for other, other moves. Same with wrestling. You faint, you shoot in, you, if you can't get the double, if you can't get the single, you switch to the double or you go to something else, high crotch, whatever. And that's how it is with me with ripping. Not that the rip itself may or may, you know, on some persons that may be all there is to it. You rip the eyeball out. That's it. But, uh, I always looked at it and approach it as a means to an end. That's just another s- step along the way to the ultimate, uh, you know, the ultimate end. Uh, so I never put, you know, my big maxim is don't ever put your eggs in one bag, your eggs in one basket, or don't go down a dead end street. You know, uh, and to hark back to Joe's co- Joe Cardinal's comment about uh, he saw the rips in the books. You know, and through the years, I remember on the internet back in the 90s, people just thinking, that's all I need. I don't actually, I don't need, I don't need to learn how to wrestle. I don't need to know how to box or whatever. I'll just poke the guy in the eye, let's say, right? Or I'll just, I'll just fish hook him. It, it doesn't work that way. You, you, you have to know how to handle the man. You have to know how to control the guy. It's all so, about control. So that, that kind of leads into something I wanted to make sure we, we talked about. So, Tony, you mentioned, like, yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a big curriculum to the Bujinkan. Something like, I don't know, 22, 2300 different techniques. What, what we do in, in my group and, and really across the Bujinkan of the guys that I've trained with is, is kind of a principles-based approach. We have what we call the Budo Code. And these are nine things that have to happen for any technique to work. But we're really looking at different principles. So we have uh, in the Bujinkan what we call the Kihon Hapo, the basic eight. And for years, there was some controversy of, depending on who you talk to, there were 10 different techniques or waza that were included in everybody's basic eight. So my students at one point were asking me about it. And I said, look, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie was really popular at that time. And I said, forget it. Let's make it simple. Learn all 10 of them. And we'll just call them the 10 pieces of eight. So that's kind of an inside joke uh, with my guys that, that these, these are the things that these, these are the things that have to be branded in your brain. But 
you're not learning these to learn the technique. At, at first, yes, like any other type movement, foot goes here, hand goes here, you got to learn that. But really what we're doing is we're using these techniques or these waza to work on these skills that are in the Budo code, these principles to get those embedded in our movement, right? So that you have a way to dissect when something doesn't go quite right or when you're doing something and you just can't, you know, I can get this, I can get it to work on this person, but I can't get something to work on this guy, right? Because human bodies are different. Some people are bigger, shorter, smaller, you know, faster, whatever. Some people are a lot more limber than others. But really it's, it's not so much about at the beginning for people when they start training, yeah, I want to learn these techniques. But really what we're trying to impart are these principles of movement and we're using the techniques to hone those skills because then you can, it, it's a way to kind of translate so you can um, di diagnose yourself and diagnose each other on, on what's going on and what somebody's doing. That's the key. Uh, and I've, I've harped on this before that a lot of people have learned, and not just martial arts now, other skill sets, by rote memory. You know, just my coach showed me or my teacher showed me how to do it. That's how I'm going to do it without any explanation. So of the theory, the deep theory behind it. So unfortunately, they can't make the adjustments like you mentioned. How do you adjust on a bigger guy or a smaller guy or, you know, bigger, stronger, whatever? Um, and you, you have to understand, you know, the, the whole principles. So it would be almost like an architect that, and I'm not really making this kind of like a crazy example, but that, you know, just it is more like an artist who can draw a picture of a barn and build a barn all day long, but build a skyscraper. Well, they can't, okay? They don't understand the principles. Now, of course, architects do know how, but the deal with these people are, are you know, yeah, you got to learn the underlying structure, which takes you down a rabbit hole. Now you got to understand the central nervous system on a human being, the skeletal system, the muscular structure of a human. It's, it's a deep, it, it gets, you know, it's like over, it's like Joe with his, uh, you know, going out in the woods training. It's, there's, there's always so much to, to, to keep on learning, you know? And, and one of the, one of the things and for, for people that may not know, um, based on, and like I said, this, this is all my understanding, right? Um, the way that the Japanese culture imparts knowledge from teacher to student is very different than how we do it in the West. Um, a, a friend of mine's wife, who's Japanese, explained it to us one time of it is it's the teacher's obligation to show whatever they're teaching as perfect as they can to show the, the most perfect technique they can. Then it's up to the student to figure out how they did it. Right. So they and, and part of that, I think, over the years, if, if you look at if you look at the martial art in context. So you're talking about Japan in the 1500s, the Warring States period, which, you know, for basically the Japanese had roughly about a hundred year civil war going on um, before 1603 and the big battle of Sekigahara. Right. Well, and, and I always talk about people, by and large, this is a world before firearms. So you may not want 
just anybody to have this knowledge, right? And I think part of the reason that that evolved in, in some of like the Japanese, the, the much more traditional Kodaru schools where, you know, you, you ask the teacher, well, how do I get good at this? And he says, go do it a thousand times, right? I think that's also part of the weed out vetting process that's embedded in the training because usually people that we'll just call them unvirtuous, they want a quick, easy, they want a shortcut, right? Like they want a shortcut. They don't want to stick around and, and take five years to learn how to, you know, to get good at something. And in, in our art, about 90% of it is, is oral transmission. Uh, even Hatsumi Soke talks about this. If, if you, the best, the very best chefs learn from the very best chefs because they're there tasting the food, right? So if, if, if you want to learn how to make this soup and this, this particular chef is the world-renowned expert in this soup, well, if you're there tasting it, now you know what that soup is supposed to taste like, right? Where you or me could watch that on the internet and go, oh, okay, watch the cooking channel and really have no idea. This right? is huge. We, Can I interrupt for a second? This is sure. a very important point. And I, I just hope it drives home to the people who are listening because I really feel this is true with Tony's techniques and feeling them firsthand. Um, you know, and why I encourage people to come and train with him. His videos are great. He lays a lot of things out very logically in a way. Like I've had people who've told me um, just from watching Tony's tapes, they've been able to tap people which is, you know, the, the whole kind of cliche of the tape trained person is always kind of the, I don't know, it's one of the, you know, kind of uh, disparaging comments we talk about people. Uh, so I'm saying the techniques you can learn verbally, but there's a part of it that until you felt it, until you felt how just how bad it sucks, how bad it hurts, it take, gives you a new appreciation, even just the pressure from the pinning when you feel it done. I mean, uh, I, I, we did a seminar uh this is back when we still had the old, not the old tool and die, but the, the, the most recent one. Um, and uh, we did a one just on head scissors and we had black belts there. We had, you know, people and I was like the Uki and Tony put the head scissors on me and I felt pressure in certain directions from his legs and the other people came up. And the, so basically he did it to me and then other guys were doing it to me and they weren't getting the, the direction and the pressures that I was feeling you know, to the degree, it was just very interesting. And, and so firsthand experience is, is key, I think, especially, especially in a physical art, you know, that translation that there's going to be, and some like some of the arts, uh, there's certain arts out there, like, I don't know if you've heard of HEMA, they're like European martial arts, they do sword fighting and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But they're, that's a dead art, they acknowledge it. There's no living masters, they all died off, all we have are the textbooks. And we have to take our best to reconstruct this with what we know of fencing and what they say. And there's some language issues there, but there's kind of an acknowledgement. We will never hundred percent know what they did, you know, cause there's a break in the chain. And that's one of my concerns with catch is that, you know, there's not that many people who have come and trained directly with Tony. He's trained thousands of people, but not people who stuck with it and learned it. So anyways, I'm sorry to get off my soapbox, but I, I'm a very strong believer in firsthand feeling it and learning it from the man uh, while he's here. So anyways, I'll get, let you get back to it, but that was, I no, want to you, emphasize you're, that. That, that is, you're absolutely 100% right on that. Um, you know, I remember the first time I went to Japan and I had technique put on me by, by one of the, you know, 
the, the quote unquote Megadons over there. And it, it changed my life because it felt like my forearm had been put in a vice that you've got in your garage and just started, somebody just started cranking on it. Right. I'm like, he's going to break that. That's going to break both those bones. That's I've never felt that before. Um, but yeah, that's, that's massively important on, on that. And, and that's also why when I was talking about earlier about authentic martial arts, that's why it's so important to make sure that they stick around because yeah, it's, it's, it's very sad that over in Europe, they're scouring through, you know, five, 600 year old Italian sword texts, trying to decipher what these guys were talking about because there's no one left. Right. And, and that's really kind of sad, right. That, that, that it's no longer alive. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely a, a, a big component to it of, of experiencing that firsthand. Yeah, when I, when I first started um, learning this, well, I had, of course I'd seen professional wrestling on local television in Cleveland, just local. You know, we didn't have, they didn't, this was before the WWF or WWE or anything. We just had what was called uh, Big Time Wrestling. I believe that, that's what it was called. And, uh, you know, um, you had certain people that would, would be on air. But some older guys, where you'd see some moves, some like <clears throat> submissions, some were ridiculous, you know. Uh, but, you know, you look at it and like, okay. And then when I started le- learning this and feeling them, you know, it was unbelievable because even though pro wrestling was always fake, uh, the pain that I was in, was far worse than the fake wrestlers that were pretending to be in pain. So, <laughs> they, you know, and then I came, as I got a little bit older, I, you know, with, with, with my coach, he's like, well, none of those guys know anything. So they don't even know how to fake it because they've never felt the real thing um, ever, not even once in their life. So it's, it's kind of hard for them to fake it because in their mind, they, they, they can't, they can't fathom, what it's like um just so yeah i i'm i'm all about learning how to yeah i've always said that to people you've you've got to come and feel this <clears throat> let me put some holes go ahead well well i want to i want to talk about this some more because i know joe's got more questions for me but there are two movies that i always tell new students if you're going to come train me you have to watch these two movies and one of them is kung fu panda the first one and not because in order to do this in in, in any of these, these truly Budo arts that we're talking about, you know, you watch that, that movie and the main character Poe is getting his butt kicked. (laughs) There's a huge training montage where he's just getting beat up and he doesn't even care. Because he just wants to learn Kung Fu so bad. He's so geeked out about it. It doesn't even matter that the instructor doesn't like him. The other students don't like him. He's he's learning it and he's doing it and he's loving it. And you've got to have a little bit of that in you because the painting is the training is hard. Pain hurts, right? People are like, oh, well, that's fake. Well, have, have you ever had somebody put you in that position? Because it doesn't feel good, right? Um, but there's, there's gotta be that, I think 
a person has to have that in there to where they're going to be willing to suffer. You know, that that's really your suffering for your art, whether it's, you know, like you did with catch or, or whatever it is, there's, there's a suffering that takes place there that as a student, you have to find somewhat enjoyable, <laughs> right? If, if, as weird as that sounds, because you, that, and that's what I mean by you've got to find an art that you like, you know, like uh, the, the gentleman talking about starting fires and yeah, you got to enjoy being out there in the rain, trying to get that thing to go. If that's what you're into. Yeah, I, I agree. There has to be a degree. There's a degree of masochism and there's a, there's a degree of sadism in a way as well as, as far as the guy applying the hold. But yeah, I mean, I know like when we watch a lot of uh, submission stuff, you'll see that, you know, the guys aren't in really any pain until the very end. Then when they feel danger, they tap out. But um, in essence, they were, they were never in any pain. They're, they were in jeopardy. They weren't in pain. And, you know, my whole thing is immediately you're in pain all the way through until it's, you know, until it's a hopeless case. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a different, you know, different application of technique. It just we I apply the holds differently than anybody else does. So that's, that's you know, the way it is, I guess. Sure. Joe, you have another question? Yeah, so you mentioned that you had uh... – train in a session with Hatsumi, I guess, kind of twofold. How, how, how many times did you train with him? And then what are your general impressions of him, like firsthand? Um, well, so when you, how many times? Start, uh, I went, first time I went to Japan was 2000. And then um, I was between the army and starting in the fire service. And we were broke. And that's when we decided to start the baby factory. So I didn't get to get to go back to Japan for quite a while till about 2013, but was training at seminars all over the place in the meantime. And I, until COVID, I was going every other year. Um, and usually when I go, I go for about nine to 11 days because that's about how much my body can handle. I, I describe it as a, as a rollover car wreck in slow motion that after about nine, you know, and usually it's two sessions a day that we do over there. So Hatsumi at that time was training three times a week um, at, at the Hambu at the headquarters. And so you were, you were doing those three classes. And then I was doing classes, at least one class every day. Um, three classes. I don't recommend though. I always end up doing that at least once every trip. And then you go back and sleep for 12 hours. Um, so how I would describe him, uh, it's very difficult, Joe, because I started training when I was 19. And as I, as I got older, was in my twenties, in my thirties, you know, the first time I went over there, I believe I was, I was 26. The first time I got to see him eyeball to eyeball. And here I am, I'm, I'm a first lieutenant in the army. I'm 26 years old. I'm, I'm bulletproof and dipped in Teflon, right? Every, every, you know, like you talked about earlier, you know, the mileage and the, the I've, I've got too many birthdays, right? All my problems are caused by too many birthdays these days, but I'm watching these guys that are in their sixties and seventies do stuff that I cannot do. 
right? Like, I can't do that. How is he doing that? Um, I, I hadn't really ever seen anything like it. Um, one experience I can tell you about, uh, one of the Dai Shihan, who unfortunately is no longer with us, uh, Seno Sensei, um, he had been very sick. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he had, but he had been off training for quite a while and he came back and I got to have two sessions with him before he passed away. And he was, when he walked in the room, he just looked like a very kind Japanese grandpa, right? He, he just looked like somebody's grandpa that happened to be Japanese. And, but there was something about him. He had a feel about him that I had recognized from a lot of war veterans, right? Of, of, there was just, we would call it a Kamai. There was just a sense about him. And so he, of course, pulls me out to be the Uke. And he, he looks and says, grab, grab, punch. So, okay, I go to grab and punch. And the only way that I can describe it is like, if you've ever seen an octopus or a squid on National Geographic spray ink and then disappear and then kill the fish or the crab or whatever, it was like poof, and he was gone. And I remember just for a moment going, please, sensei, don't injure me because I need my body. <laughs> I, I'm a fireman. I need my body for my job. And suddenly I saw the ceiling, the wall, the ceiling, the wall, the floor, boom. Right. And kind of, and he, he's there, he smiles. He's like, okay. Hi. Okay. Let's, okay. Let's do it again. Right. And it was just that sense of like, where did he go? And, all, and I, and I, I trained enough at that point to know, I, I know I'm getting hit, but I don't know where it's coming from. It's a lot like that where you you think you've got him or you think you're going to hit him and boom he's gone um another story uh i got you guys will enjoy this so we're training in japan and this is how i got on uh, another of the dai shihan's radar i'm training with my friend gina who went to college with and this was during a nagato sensei class and he had shown a technique and i had no idea what he did I didn't know what he did. I didn't know how he did it. So I'm just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm like Poe and Kung Fu Panda. I'm just happy to be there and I'm trying it. And a friend of ours down the way who'd been training for quite a while looks at me and says, Justin, that's not the technique since they showed. Well, the Japanese, that, that's kind of, that's a show of disrespect, right? If the instructor shows one technique, you know, you need to endeavor to do what the instructor shows. And I looked over at my friend and I said, I know. And he just got this look of terror on his face. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, man, I, I have no idea what sensei did. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just incompetent. <laughs> well, unbeknownst to me, sensei's right behind me. And I hear this chuckle. And he's like, oh, oh, okay, stop. And then he goes over to my friend Gina and says, Gina, you watch, teach him. And then he proceeds to do the technique on me again. And I thought he stuck a shiv right into my right kidney. Right. And he's like the whole time, Justin. Okay. Okay. Yep. I'm good. Each class that trip, he pulled me out and would just do a little bit more to see where I was a little bit more, a little bit rougher, a little bit rougher. And now when I go back, he, he pulls me out every time, <laughs> but uh, he, he just kind of chuckled. I'm like, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm lost here in this class because these guys are so good. So I don't know if that makes sense or if it answers your question, Joe, but 
that's what I always found intriguing of just how are they doing what they're doing? Because I can't get it right. I've tried, I've tried to get them and, and paid the price for it. Um, so does that, does that answer it or? Well, it definitely gives us some perspective on, you know, someone who's had firsthand experience with their, with their higher level instructors. You so, know, you, you know how uh, Tony talks about, he's going to, it causes pain the entire time, right? The, the higher level instructors, you don't know that you're in trouble until it's too late. So uh, it's very similar to what Tony talks about on like snap, no tap or what, what, what uh, in catch is considered a hook. The, the difference is you don't know that it's coming. It's all of a sudden, boom, it's there and it's too late. Now they don't do it that way, obviously, because they're not breaking people, but it's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And suddenly here comes the pain out of nowhere. And I don't know where it came from. Right. And then it's like, okay, how did he do that? That's kind of the feel that I've always had with it. Where as, as the attacker, you're feeling good, you're feeling safe until you're not. And then it's too late. It's just your hat. Does that help? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I want to ask, so obviously you're instructing now, you've been with this for many years. Uh, so you're at a, a, at a black belt level of a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Does that mean I'm aware there's something called, is it the Saki test? Am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> the Saki, not to be confused with Sake. Sake. <laughs> Maybe you need sake both. Sake is the dream. The Saki is the test. So it's, it's, it's S-A-K-I and not S-A-K-E. Mm. So Sake is, those tests come after training when everybody's <laughs> yeah. a little beat up and worn out. Um, so yes, uh, so as I said, there, there's 15 degrees of black belt in the Bujinkan. Um, when you get to fifth degree or Godon, Go just is Japanese for five. You take what's called the Saki test. And traditionally, uh, Hatsumi, you are sitting in Seiza. So you're, you're sitting with your, on your knees with your legs folded up underneath you, you know, jet, what everybody would consider Japanese style, right? That's called Seiza. And Hatsumi, or now one of the Daishihan, um, stands behind you with a training sword, split bamboo sword, a boken, in the old days, whatever was handy. And your back is to him, and he makes a cut from Dai Jodon, which is, you know, up overhead, straight down. And you've got to not get hit and not move early. And that's the test. And if, if you don't get hit and you don't move early, um, you pass. And if you get hit, then you get to come back maybe in a couple of days and, and try again if your instructor thinks you're ready. In the old days, you, your instructor had to um, sign off. They, they, your instructor had to vouch for you that you were ready to take that test because you didn't want to get up there and get <clears throat> whacked in the back of the head. Has anyone ever died with that test? No, well, not not in the modern era. <laughs> I think uh, I think traditionally that was another way to like weed out spies, maybe in the Warring States period. Um, but no, he he usually he he there's a in the Hambu there's a special training sword that he has, which is a it's a split bamboo sword. Um, you see a lot of them in uh, Kendo, a Shanai is what we call it. Um, 
but no, nobody's ever, he's never killed anybody doing that. Um, especially uh, when I first started training, Hatsumi Sensei would come over to the U.S. once a year during Memorial Day weekend and have a Taikai. And that was kind of the chance for everybody in the U.S. that couldn't get to Japan for whatever reason to have a three-day seminar and, and be able to see him and see what he's doing. And that's usually when guys would take the test. Or now you, you kind of go to Japan to take the test. So I took mine in 2002 at the Taikai right outside of St. Louis. Um, so it, it was, that was a good day. And My the thinking is, is that there's kind of a, a sixth sense for danger that kind of a, is that it's, so it's, you're not hearing it or no, seeing no. it. Um, <laughs> it, it is a very interesting experience. Um, for me, yes, I, I felt it. I, people have asked me about it. It felt because, uh, Hatsumi gave me my test. And when he did it at that Taikai, he had a lot of the senior black belts that were in the room. And if you took it that day, he said, if, if any of the senior instructors feel that the person didn't pass it, just say no. So for those of us that passed it on that particular day, not only did you have to pass it, all these guys had to agree unanimously that you passed it. It, it really kind of felt like a, a wave building up behind me. And all of a sudden I just moved and I don't remember moving. I just remember kind of coming back to reality and I was upside down halfway through a side roll. And I looked up and he said, very good. You pass. Everybody nodded. And I went back over to the wall to wait for everybody else before anybody changed their mind. Um, I've had four of my students get to the point where they where they have taken and passed that test. So not a whole lot of people stick with it long enough. But yeah, that that's a, a demonstration that you're developing, you know, a sense of awareness, right? Because we talked before, it's about survival, right? You you need to have that, you need to develop that spidey sense. You know, uh, Tony's talked about this, you know, I've had a lot of uh, women come to me for training or, or whatever. And one of the things I always tell them is if something doesn't feel right, it's not right. Don't, don't go there. Right. Trust that instinct. When, when you get those, the hair on your arm starts standing up or, or something just feels off, believe that. Right. Um, you know, like we have a, we have a, uh, a golden doodle named dude. And I've only ever heard him growl once at somebody. So that's kind of a, a litmus test when someone comes to the house. If, if my dog is growling at you, then I probably don't want to know you because <laughs> um, he's happy to see everybody. But, um, but yeah, that, that sense of uh, that's part of the training because it, it's about being able to survive. Hmm. It reminds yeah, me of, uh, I'm sorry. That reminds me of blood sport when he's, when his sensei is training him blindfold and he's got to like duck when he, when he goes to hit him and stuff, do you guys do any blindfold training or is, or is there anything that you do specifically to kind of develop that, that like sixth sense? I, there isn't any of that in, in the Bujinkan curriculum per se. I've, I've done some of that. Um, and, and really that, you know, is like a, it's more like a sensory 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Deprivation. Thank you. Sensory, sensory deprivation where, um, you know, you've got to listen to your ears, you know, you got li- obviously listen to your ears, listen through your ears and, and start noticing things and just kind of turning that on. Cause that's a skill that needs to be practiced. And I've, I've done that in fires. Um, you know, when, when you're inside a house fire, you can't see anything. There's just black smoke everywhere. So you have to learn to listen. I've, I've found fires by listening because, and then maybe you turn the corner and there's like a blurry orange glow but you can hear the crackling first before you find it a lot of times. Um, but a lot of that is just, you know, when, when people are training Nico, a, a lot of people that come to the Bougiecon are not division one athletes, right? Um, Joe's talked about this people who have the, the central nervous system and the genetic predisposition to be division one type athletes. A lot of times they don't go into the martial arts. There, there's no money in the martial arts for those guys, right? right? They're, they're going for a football scholarship or, or maybe they get offered, a, you know, in a sport like wrestling where they can, they can go to college on a scholarship, you know? Well, absolutely go do that. Um, so we spend a lot of time just kind of helping people wake up their bodies, right? Because it, it is a physical thing. So I've, I've trained with guys who have done wrestler, uh, wrestling and they're very good at knowing where you are. If any part of your body is touching a guy who's done a lot of wrestling, he knows where you are. He doesn't need to see you. Right. And that just kind of develops as a, as a byproduct of the training, in my opinion. I was going to put a scene on the snap, no tap <clears throat> wrestling blindfolded as a matter of fact. And, just like I was going to do things with the lost start of hooking, you just run out of time at the studio. You know, you don't, sure. you can't, you can't do it. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's another interesting way of training. Oh, uh, and it, you know, and it really gets important because it's a way to develop a sensitivity that's, yeah. that's absolutely essential, especially when you start putting weapons in guys' hands, right? Cause you know, if, if you think of how nuanced you, you watch, uh, well, you watch Lomachenko box, right? And everybody's like, well, boxing is a sport. Well, if you're going to watch boxing, watch Lomachenko. I, I had my wife watch one of his matches, and he, she goes, he makes boxing look pretty, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of skill there, but there's a sensitivity that he's not cognitively thinking about what he's doing at that point. And, and I talk about this a lot with my students that in, in my theory, how I explain it, you've got three brains. You've got your lizard brain, your, your mammal brain, and then what I call your calculus brain. And when it comes to martial arts or, or even sports in general, something physical, your calculus brain can do nothing but lie to you. Right. It, it does not serve you any purpose, you know, in, in that regard. So it's not like when you're and, and you guys know this when you've done it, when you start training with a little bit of intensity. Right. You, you, you go from that crawl, you know, you crawl, walk, run. Right. When you're in the walking and running phase of your training, there's not time to sit there and, and cognitively go through. Right. What am I doing? You're feeling it right? You're, you're reacting with that because that calculus brain 
isn't doing you a whole lot of good at, in that moment. That's for later when you got to go back and analyze and look at what you did wrong and stuff like that. And a lot of times it's very difficult to get someone who hasn't, maybe they haven't ever gotten their played sports to like even a varsity high school level, which most people nowadays don't, right? It's very difficult for them to, to understand that, right? To, to, or even to accept it. Um, I've, you know, Purdue University is known for engineering. It's an ag engineering school, right? And, and the students that I would, was training there back when they had a group, you know, highly intelligent human beings. And, but some of them almost could barely put one foot in front of the other, you know, because they, they, they spent all their time and effort in that calculus brain. And that's why I call it the calculus brain. You know, you, you try juggling a ball, you know, try doing juggling and doing calculus, right? It, it's something's going <laughs> to, you're going to drop the ball, right? Um, but that's, that's part of that, that, that I find a lot of people have difficulty with, I've struggled with, you know, that when you're in that moment doing that, the reason for that training and the reason why we all train is because in the moment, you're not going to know what to do. Your, your brain isn't going to tell you he's doing this and he's doing that. There's not time for that. Um, and that's really inherent when we put training weapons in people's hands. Now, um, let me switch gears about the training. Where'd you do your fire training? Um, I did my fire training when I started with the Muncie Fire Department. Um, so my training was in Indiana to be a fireman, either professional or volunteer, you have to do a 24-hour mandatory firefighter class. It's a state certification. All the certifications are through the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. So we went through two weeks when I hired in uh, on Muncie, two weeks to cover the mandatory firefighter and hazmat awareness and operations level. And then we were thrown on a truck and it was on the job training. So um, that's how I learned at first. And then about nine months later, a couple of us went down to Newcastle, Indiana. They had a firefighter one and two certifications course that we took. But by that time, um, I was very fortunate at the beginning of my career in that regard. My first six months in the fire service, I was inside 26 burning buildings while they were on fire. Wow. So you, you, you learn quick, right? So when I got to the firefighter one and two certification training, the three of us had kind of all hired in together and come up together. I mean, it, that was a party, right? <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, we're, ju we're just hanging out. This is no big deal. Um, but yeah, my, my first fire, uh, one of my lieutenants, a very good guy whose nickname was Superman. Um, he got, he got a, uh, a second, third degree burn on his face in that fire. Uh, it was a three-story Victorian house that had a slate roof. So the roof didn't vent. So the whole thing became a giant easy bake oven. And his Nomex hood had not overlapped his mask, his SCBA. And so he had a, he had a pretty nasty burn going down the side of his cheek when that fire was over. Wow. Well, I, I've heard good things about the Chicago Fire Academy. They're supposed to be like, 
they send guys from all over the world to train in Chicago at times for advanced training. Yeah, there are there are a lot of classes for that all over the United States. Uh, Indiana, not too far uh, out there, outside of South Bend, they have a great school, uh, Swiftwater Rescue School, and it's one of two or three in the country uh, where they they're on the St. Joe River, St. Joseph River, and they they've built a basically it's a kayak type course like the U.S. Olympic <clears throat> goes there and trains, and they can control how much water is flowing through there and and you can work on like the swimming rescue techniques and swimming survival techniques and stuff like that in that course that was a lot of fun i really enjoyed that course can can just a civilian take that course or do you have to be a a firefighter i I believe for that one you've got to be on a fire department um i i don't know if they would let a civilian do it or not because uh there are some prerequisites for that course but guys come from all over the country for that course but I don't know of any anybody that's ever taken it that wasn't on the you know in a fire on a fire department. Yeah, Chicago Fire Department. You know they well, of course with the Great Chicago Fire. You know and how that went down back in the eighteen seventies or what have you. Um, yeah, but I've I've been friends with several Chicago fire uh, firefighters. Of course, you know again I I haven't lived in the city proper or I haven't lived in Chicagoland for eight years. Uh, but, uh, so you, you kind of lose touch with some of them, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it can be treacherous, especially in Chicago. Uh, some of the suburbs, not so much because with new building codes and new construction, those buildings are pretty, pretty stout, but, um, there's some Chicago firehouses, man. That's all they're doing. They're constantly running. Constantly running. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the guys from New York said that if, if you're going to be a firefighter and you want to be busy, you're, you're probably going to work on the bad side of town. Yeah. Right. That, that just, cause that's, that's where that, that kind of stuff happens. But uh, yeah, I, I have a, and part of that training, you know, fighting fire and being, uh, having been in the armor corps in the army, that, that also affected affects my perspective on the martial arts and training as well. Um, of of how I go about it. And I think to answer Joe's question, that probably also helped draw me to the Bujinkan, though I didn't know it at the time, the the armored the armored fighting aspect of it, um, which really no one does anymore. Um, you know, we're not walking around wearing suits of armor, but that's where a lot of that stuff uh, that was the testing ground, right? The the testing ground came from the battlefields of Japan, so. I was going to ask about kind of the crossover with their training and the firefighting as well. Were there moments in your firefighting career where your, your martial arts training has helped you? Oh, yes. Um, I've taken a couple falls, nasty falls down the stairs in the dark. And knowing how to fall <laughs> has probably saved me from injury. That's probably been the single biggest thing that's kept me from really getting hurt is, is being able to fall in from being thrown and tossed so many times that being able to do that, being able to hit the ground unexpectedly and training enough to where your body does things automatically and instinctively to not get an injury. Right. It it always hurts a little bit, you know, falling on the ground is never fun, but um, that yes. And then a lot of the, uh, 
the bougie kind of affected my training in, in the army and the fire service, because in the moment I, I do a lot of things by feel, right. Um, just because I think in the, from, from training in the bougie con, I learned to, I've learned to recognize patterns, right. You get really good at recognizing patterns of movement, um, sometimes patterns of behavior and, I took those principles with me into my army career and now into my firefighting career of recognizing those and, and that methodology to where it becomes, where it becomes natural, right? It just becomes part of, of what you do. Um, so one of the things I, I like to tell people, if, if you watch a little, a very small child, one that's still in diapers who can't walk yet, how they go upstairs, right? They're, they're reaching, they're, you know, it, it's like they really don't know where at first, where they need to be. But then as an adult, if you go up a flight of stairs that you've never been up before, you don't stop and measure how, how tall the stairs are, right? You, your brain, your eyes see it, your brain knows the distance and it goes, right? Because you've done it so many times, right? And that's part of the, process of the training that I really like if you just keep going and going and going and that process over time suddenly you're able to do things that you weren't able to do anymore you know that you weren't able to do before sorry um and and it becomes natural it becomes a part of you and that's really kind of the goal um more questions on uh the ninjutsu aspect of it um okay uh, so the stuff that we saw in the movies as kids, they do the finger knitting, kind of the interesting finger mm -hmm. meditation type things. Uh, have you done that? What's your experience with that? And, and what are the benefits, if you have, that you've gotten from that? Uh, I, I haven't really done a whole lot of that. Okay. Um, that, that has a couple benefits. Um, first off, that comes from uh, certain sects of Buddhism or Shinto. And in, in those sects, they would tell you those, those are ways of aligning your body's energies, right? So uh, in, in yoga, they talk about chakras, right? In, in Buddhism, in, in that culture, they have different things. One of the things, though, it does from a physical standpoint, in order to do some of those positions, you've got to have very limber fingers <laughs> and hands. So... It's also a physical thing to where um, some of the older uh, gentlemen can fold their hands in on themselves, which makes them very difficult to grab and get a hold of. <laughs> that when someone grabs and you can just you can just let your hand collapse and the grip just kind of slides off. Uh, but those are uh, those are different things that you'll see. Um, different priests do in Japan, depending on, on what's going on. Uh, but that's where that comes from. It's just a way of aligning different energies of the body. Wait, what is, what is finger knitting? Finger knitting. Well, that was kind of like, I guess I, informal term. I, I so I, I think that the technical term is, is it Kuji curry or something? Uh, yes. The Kuji. Yeah. I wasn't going to throw any more Japanese terms at people there, but yes, it, it, it's, it's Kuji. So it's a way of, it's a way of manipulating your, your hand position 
um, and interlacing your fingers, and there are different ones depending on how you're feeling that day, right? So that kind of goes back to the, it goes way back to like Chinese medicine and like the acupuncture and chi, right? The, the meridians of the body and, and how your central nervous system actually processes information, the, the electrical circuitry of your body, right? Um, that is a way to do that. And that's where it comes from. But in order to do some of them, you, your fingers have got to be very limber <laughs> to do it. So there is a physical benefit from a, from a martial arts perspective for it. It's kind of tied in with the meditation side of it, correct? Or Yes. Yes. So yeah, there's, there's that too. But you don't focus on that as much? Not, not at, at the beginning. Mm. Um, that, that's, those are, those are things that you learn later, um, of really just having a way of, of going through life. Cause like I said before, the training becomes kind of part of how you, how you are. Right. And it's about survival and, things happen in life. Um, life has different seasons. You know, uh, we all know that we, I can't do what I used to do when I was 25, right? Um, I'm in a different season of life in that. So that's also part of, you know, the, the learning as you, as you progress through the training, right? I don't want to say progress up the rank because having umpteenth degree of black belt, that doesn't help you in a fight you know, black belts don't stop bullets, right? <laughs> there's, there's, a re but there's also that part of it, of the, of the training and a, and a deeper understanding of the natural world, right? Of, of your body and, and how things work. And, you know, if also for your health, right? There's a lot of things that, that come later um, that are, that are for overall health and longevity so that you can, you can move. And I, I see, and I know Joe, you, you said you were studying, uh, studying to be an EMT, right? I, I see a lot of people as they get older, they, they lose that mobility, right? And then their bodies start to get stiff and the muscles start to atrophy and they can't react if they start to lose their balance and they don't have the range of motion to be able to adjust. I mean, we've all, tripped on the carpet or you know something like that or hit a a, a sheet of ice that kind of oh we you know jump a little bit but that's that's important to keep it's a it's a it's really important to keep that physical ability because as we get older if you fall and break a hip you're in trouble right and especially in the ancient world if if you fall and, and some of these uh some of the things now you know guys we, we live in a wonderful period in history where you can repair an ACL, right? Three, four, 500 years ago, they're not repairing those. That, that person is lame for the rest of their life, right? It's never going to work as well as it did before the injury. And there are certain injuries that human beings can get that are absolutely devastating just from falling, right? So that's, that's part of that. It's, uh, you know, part of the, from the people that I've talked <clears throat> that have done martial arts their whole life, black belts, not 
Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, but with traditional martial arts, be it Chinese or be it, um, you know, Japanese or even Korean. Um, part of the mental aspect of it or the, let's call it Zen perhaps, or, or uh, you know, what, what, whatever. In <clears throat> um, certain people, that, that becomes a problem for them. <clears throat> because some guys that I know are, are, are very staunch uh, Christians. Mm-hmm. And in certain sects of Christianity, you don't meditate. Meditate is forbidden, okay? Because to them, it is a gateway for, for the devil to enter your mind. That's how right, right. Certain, certain ones of them. I, I, know, I know one in particular, a good friend of mine, who that's his belief. Okay. Um, I do, I do meditate. Okay. Kevin and I used to meditate. Matter of fact, I just made a video for somebody this week regarding meditation to help him with it because he asked. Um, but yeah, I know that that can become a very serious issue uh, as yoga. Uh, I know that in certain school districts, they were trying to introduce yoga and then they kind of banned it because of the other, the religious, the religiosity or whatever it is, uh, oh. whatever the word is. So I've noticed that, um, and I find that baffling to me because, uh, yeah, you can have your belief in whatever, you know. Uh, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I think it's beneficial to meditate. Yeah, and I'd like to address that issue too because um, I've I've had that question a lot over the years. Okay. Um, so when you're looking at, let's just say the Eastern arts, okay. Um, I think like if you look at the, the, the physical benefits of yoga are, are pretty well documented, (laughs) right? Just, just from a physical standpoint, if nothing else, if it's done right, if, if you don't overdo it, because I, I will say, you know, I've, I've had firefighters, you know, want me to help them with their mobility. I'm working on my mobility and I tell them you you can't go, you got to go easy on yourself. You can't go at this like it's a 300-pound bench press or you're going to pop an O-ring, right? Things, things are going to snap, crackle, pop on you, and it's not going to be pleasant. You've got to, you've got to be gentle to yourself. Um, there, the religious aspect of that gets, gets interwoven. And so let's talk about Zen Buddhism because that's really kind of what J- Japan is famous for. Okay. Just if you take the religi- religiosity of it out, what are those guys really trying to do? If anybody that's actually been in a life, life or death confrontation, not a sport, not an MMA match, where all of a sudden you're in a situation and it's not obvious that you're going to make it home. Right. Someone that comes up with some very bad intentions. Right. People are traumatized by that. Right. I mean, we we see that all the time and we have a term for it. It's called post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And I always ask people, if you're living in the warring states period of Japan, where everything you do is hand to hand combat. Do you think maybe those guys had some PTSD going on? Right. Yeah, sure. Sure. So a very natural thing for those guys to be able to do is, hey, let's sit those guys down and let's teach them how to breathe and calm their mind. 
because if you've ever dealt with anyone that has PTSD, they can't turn it off, right? Um, one young man that went to my high school years after me came back from Iraq and he, he had a lot of difficulty being inside like Walmart, being around crowds. It was triggering his fight or flight from his combat experience. So he, I'm going outside, I'm smoking a cigarette. Well, cigarettes probably not great for his health, but it's better than him, you know, losing it in the middle of Walmart, right? Mentally. So from that perspective, it's not an accident that if you study a lot of the old Japanese samurai, that when they kind of retired, they all became priests. <laughs> they all became Zen priests where they're sitting there and, and what do you do? You sit and you practice breathing, right? And you kind of control your mind, especially in like modern, in, in a modern world where we're just changing channels all the time. So like I tell people, here's an exercise for you. Go get a comfortable chair that you can sit in relatively you know, straight and get in a room by yourself, close your eyes, breathe in and out, in and out, you know, in for five count, out for five count, whatever, that's one. See if you can get to 10 without losing count because something's going to pop in your mind and be like, oh, the kids at the baseball game, I got to pick this up. I got to, uh, I got to get, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, crud, what, what number was I on, right? If that happens, you got to start all the way back at number one, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's just a way of, you know, we all have it. We're all walking around with a lot of mental static. And that's, that's a way, and, and people that have been traumatized, they have that in spades, in, in my experience, right? And it's a way to help deal with that. You know, we see, uh, you know, thank God now they're finally recognizing it that, they have service dogs for veterans that have PTSD, right? And, and you see those guys, and you can go on YouTube, and they're talking about this dog saved my life, right? You know, we, we've got this whole thing in our society of, uh, what is it, the, the 22, where we lose, you know, however many veterans every hour to suicide, right? Why is that happening? Well, because these men and women have been traumatized. They, they've seen the worst of humanity, in warfare and we haven't really done a great job of giving them the tools to to deal with it. um if you look at uh guys that came back particularly from vietnam that my father's generation right uh i had a vietnam uh retired major tell me you know in, in world war ii the average infantryman in the european theater saw 50 days of actual combat a year which is a lot. Uh, and according to him, in Vietnam, because of the advent of the helicopter and its use in tactics, that number went up over 200. So you had these Vietnam vets coming back that had seen, when you, when you go day to day, yes, they spent a year in Vietnam versus a year in, in Europe, but how many hours did they spend actually under fire? Right. And, and they were having experiencing all the negative side effects from that. So that's a lot of it that that people don't understand if they haven't really studied warfare and killing and what it does to a human being psychologically, both being a victim of it and perpetrating it. Right. 
Um, so now there is there, and that kind of, there is a religious aspect to that, but as far as those benefits from it, I don't think that those can really be ignored, right? That, that, you know, I, and I'm not saying I sell everything you have and go become a Zen Buddhist, right? Um, I, I wouldn't condone that, but there is use, there are useful things there, right? Because human beings haven't changed in the last several thousand years. Our ancestors are dealing with the same trauma and stuff that we're dealing with just in a different way, right? So I don't think it's an accident that when like Miyamoto Musashi, when he retires from sword fighting at age 30, goes and spends the last 20 years of his life at a Buddhist monastery, right? And then decides to write the Book of Five Rings, right? That what when you're around old war vets who have been there and done that, they all kind of do that in a way, right? They, they, the, the ones that make it, they have a way of doing something uh, to cope with that. A, a gentleman I knew in Texas that I trained with, he was a, his, his thing was cane fighting. He, he would take just, you know, an old man's cane and he was just, he'd tear you up with a cane, right? He'd been Marine Force Recon in Vietnam, He'd done three tours in Vietnam, and he had a pond full of catfish and a giant cowbell. And he would go out every day and ring the bell, and you'd see these huge, these, these big hog catfish come up. And he'd have buckets of basically carp feed that he'd toss them in there. And it was known all around, you don't go fishing in that man's catfish pond. <laughs> Those are his pets, Right. If you, if you mess with those catfish, bad things are going to happen to you because that's, that was his daily ritual, right, of, of how he processed. Um, and you see that a little bit in the, in the fire service. I call it the firefighter insanity, where you're dealing with chaos, you know, so often that we end up doing silly little things in the firehouse to combat that, like, we don't have a signed seating at the dinner table, Nico, but that's my chair. You're sitting in my chair, but we don't have a signed seating, but that's the chair I sit in, right? Because it's a way for me to, you know, hey, there, there's, there's the cabinet of coffee mugs, go get you one, but, but don't get the blue one because that one's mine, right? It's not mine, mine, but that's the one I use, and hey, don't, don't do that, right? And it, people don't understand that, but after a while of get on the truck, and you really don't have any idea what you're dealing with and you go and going into chaos, that's a way psychologically to combat that. Right. If, if that makes sense. And, and those are, those are a couple of silly examples, but that's a real thing. Right. I have it. And I've found in my observation after about seven or eight years, I, I have a coffee cup at, cup at work that that's mine. Right. Yeah. And, and if it's not in the cabinet, I want to know, where is it? Who's got it? Who took it? Damn it, Proby. Yeah. <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> well, I, I just, hey, man, I just got it out of the cabinet. I, I understand, but that's mine. Okay, go, go find your own mug. I but will that, say that, this. That's how I explain, I'm sorry, that's how I explain that to people because it's, it's weird, right? It, for, for most people in the West, you know, being a ninja is a weird thing right? Like, what do you study? Oh, you study ninjutsu. Well, that you're already getting thrown into the weird category, right? <laughs> because of the movies, because all the, because everybody thinks of the eighties movies, right? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 
right? And I've got four of them living in my house and all they do is, <laughs> right? That's, <laughs> but. Do, do you guys, as firefighters, do you do like any kind of group activities to, on your downtime to uh, kind of unwind from all the chaos? Um, not, not like, not like people think we would do based on what you see on television, right? You know, I spend, because of our schedule, you spend roughly a third of your life with the guys that you work with. So, and, and you're talking about a bunch of alpha male dudes, right? Most of us have done some kind of sports. A lot of us have been veterans and, you know, there's a brotherhood in the fire service and you may love your brother, but sometimes you don't like him a whole lot. <laughs> so sometimes it's, it's good to get away from him. Right. And, yeah. and everybody has bad <clears throat> days, right. I've, I've had some really terrible days. Um, I got into a, I got into a big argument with a coworker over Danica Patrick and NASCAR. Right screaming match like we thought coffee mugs were going to start you know because i'm i'm the enlightened ninja right and i get into a shouting match over 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 nascar and I, a couple of weeks went by and i saw him again i said hey man you know i don't mind if we fight and argue but could we fight about something other than nascar because i really don't care about nascar right i don't know who any of the drivers are so if we're going to argue and fight with each other can can we do it about something that really matters? Cause I, I don't care. Right. I don't, I couldn't tell you who won the Daytona 500 this year. I don't care enough about it. So it's silly to fight over it. And he was like, yeah, man, that, that was pretty dumb. Right. <laughs> and, but in, in a normal work environment, we, we would have probably both been in HR and lost our jobs. Right. Um, cause the, the firehouse is a unique place cause you live with your coworkers. Um, so there's a, there's a bond that ends up forming that, you know, e even guys that you may not necessarily like, you're going to do stuff for when, you know, life happens, right? And, or you learn how to get along. And that's a big part of the job. A big part of that job is, can you be, you know, if most people live in an apartment or, or the downstairs of your house with four guys for 24 hours a day and their coworkers, Right. Um, and dealing with those personalities and, and being able to get along, right? Um, there's a lot of give and take that has to happen for that to for that to for that to work. Yeah, it's, it, it 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 is an interesting dynamic. And in Chicago, they have the big rivalry between the police department and the fire department, and they normally they normally have uh, year every year boxing. Okay, sure. Chicago cops against the Chicago firefighters, and you know, um, yeah, I've I've always said, well, you know, the firemen are actually at a at a big advantage because I know the firehouses. I've I've been to a few, you know, and they have little gyms. Some some of them have them set up, or the heavy bags, you know, they can work out. Whereas the copper has to do it on his on his off yeah, time. He <laughs> You know, and that yeah. that get paid for it. <laughs> but, I, I always I always look at that as a very friendly rivalry. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the police officers because I don't want to do their job. Um, uh, but you know, th there's there's some friendly teasing that goes on every once in a while. But 
um, yeah, I, the guys that I've talked to, I don't want to do their job and they don't want to do mine, right? They're like, you, you guys are nuts for doing what you do. Um, but I, I think that's just a wiring thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, I've always said that if you want to know if somebody would be a police or firefighter, if you hand a, a future police officer a taser, he's going to look at it, he's going to clear it, he's going to do it, and he's going to set it back on the table. The future fireman will take that taser and point it right at his buddy and shoot him with it to see if it works. <laughs> right? <And> that's <laughs> that, that's why they don't give firefighters tasers because we would just be shooting each other all day around the engine house with it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess many, many years ago, probably even before I was born, for sure before I lived in Chicago, I think like in the old man daily, the uh, cops were going to go on strike. So I think Daly was going to just start issuing sidearms to the fire department and like make them temporary police officers or something like that. Um, it's probably like in the late sixties or something I heard. Um, and I remember I knew a fire Lieutenant Chicago fire Lieutenant. He actually was a boxer in world war two on a Navy. Like he was fleet champ or something, but it, anyway, um, he's like, and he was serious about this. He said, we, we could do a police officer's job. It's just a matter of memorizing words, you know, laws. But he says, you can't put a fire hose in a cop's hand or an un- anybody, but he specifically was like, cop, you know, you got to know how to fight a fire. You just have to know how to fight a fire. It's it's and, not like just point of holes. There's more to it, you know. And, and I, I liken that, Tony, to like the old, you know, armor versus infantry, Right it's a very different mindset, right? It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a different, it's just a different mindset. It's a, it's a different wiring um, that, that guys kind of sink their teeth into. Um, and, and, you know, they're always complaining about each other or dissing on each other or whatever, but it's just the, the it's a completely different, it's a completely different thing, right? To, to be a police officer, that's a completely different mindset. They got to worry about so many other things that we don't and vice versa. Yeah. You know, we show up and those guys by and large, they've already made sure the scene is safe. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't have to worry about getting attacked when I'm going in and fighting a fire because the police officers, if there was something bad going on in that regard, they've already, they've already cleared that area out for us. So I don't have to worry about that. Um, and that's why I'm like, hey, those, those guys are great, right? Just uh, please don't park the cruiser in front of the burning house because we need <laughs> that space, right? Right. Um, <laughs> which is kind of a standing joke um, around here about it. No, I've, I've had friends that are both coppers and, and firefighters. And, uh, yeah, it, it's there, there's a lot more similarities. Well, I'm just talking about the people that I know, right? Um, I'm not in either – profession but yeah the people that i know there there's a lot more similarities i think than some of them want to admit um oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> but but there are there is some uh cross-pollination uh sometimes what i found is they'll like this is coming from the police angle um sometimes some of the coppers i knew would give would give a firefighter a break others are like uh-uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna nail them harder uh you know, you know because Cause he should know better. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's just, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting, but here at least in Chicago, 
uh, the firefighters, some, they have a lot of side businesses because they have time off and they do a lot of like home repairs, lawn care, things like that. Um, and depending on the neighborhood in Chicago, uh, a lot of the folks will will get like if they need something done around the house, they'll hire the fireman's company, right? And mm-hmm. you'd be surprised these guys make a killing. I mean, they work for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's handed to them. But, yeah, they got a, a lucrative side job. Um, and I think that's part of the rib with the with the Chicago police officers because Chicago coppers don't have that time. They, they can't do right. that. You know, right. they, they don't have that luxury. But, I mean, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've heard both sides. You know, uh, well, you know, in the in the fire service, we get we get guys from a a big, uh, very varied backgrounds. But a lot of guys came up through maybe they worked construction before they were a firefighter, or they did HVAC. You know, they they were yeah. working in that industry before they became firemen, and then you know they just kind of. You know, they, they want something to do and, well, hey, this is what I know. They just keep doing what they were doing before, you know, maybe part time or, or, you know, on a side gig or something like that. Um, I haven't done too much of that because uh, I after to me, the, the best part about being a firefighter is the schedule, because after being like I told you guys before, after being on active duty, and never knowing from one day to the next when I would be home, right? I I use my schedule to be able to to be able to hang out with my boys when they were little, mm-hmm. right? To, to take them to the baseball games and the swim practices and stuff like that whenever I could, um, because my dad had a job where he wasn't able to do that, and that's that's what it afforded me, and I, you know that. That was important to me. But, you know, yeah, now that my kids have their own social lives, <laughs> it's like, okay, then maybe I'll, you know. So, and and then, I, of course, I do this, too. So, um, it's a lot of fun. Well, I Joe, guess looking at the clock on the wall, it's about that time, right, Joe? Is it about that time? I don't Joe, yeah, do you have any other going, major questions for me? Oh, I got a million of them. I will have to do another session, I think. Just once you get me started, but I, I will make an observation. I, I think it's super cool that, you know, obviously you have your main martial art that you're training, but you're willing to look outside to other arts, specifically catch and kind of appreciate what it can add to your game, so to speak. Uh, I've seen that with a few other people. We have some people who do Krav Maga, you know, and things like that. And they're like, oh, wow, this this catch thing can work for me too. You know, what I'm trying to achieve with my training and things. And uh, I think, you know, it's cool to see someone trying to integrate, you know, what what Tony does and the catch into other arts and keeping your mind open there. Uh, that's awesome. So I'm really encouraged to hear that. Um, and yeah, it was a great conversation. Like I said, as a Ninja fanboy, I can't, I got a million questions. And I love to talk to someone who's actually, like I said, gone to Japan multiple times and actually worked with the real guys uh, to get some like honest, like real feedback, you know, not, not so much the hype. So that was, that was super cool. Uh, I hope we'll have you back. Uh, I'll definitely be in touch outside of this podcast. Sure. So uh, but it was great having you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I, I had a lot of fun. Well, we'll see you see everybody next week. And thanks once again for checking in. All right. Thanks, guys.
Thank you. 